the last we spoke, I mentioned having done the combat art in Vietnam as a Marine. The then director of the NASA art program saw some of those sketches, and that was his reason for calling me. He needs someone that could work under pressure, work quickly, and so on and so forth. And he, he placed the phone call himself, and he said, I'd like you to come work on the first launch of the space shuttle. And I said, no. <laughs> I, surprise. <laughs> I don't do rockets. I don't do metal structures. He said, no, no. Very quietly, I'd like you to work with the two astronauts. Everybody wants to work with the astronauts, so I don't want too much talk about the fact that you're doing it. And I went out the summer before the actual launch in order to meet them and to go through the first uh, 51 and a half hour or 56 and a half hour uh, simulation of the flight. Now keep in mind as you look at these pieces and listen to these words, we did not know on that first launch if the ship was able to return with all the new technology of the tiles. So this was a huge, huge gamble, and these were two very, very, very brave men. These are true heroes, in my opinion, truly heroes. But they're extraordinary, yet very ordinary men. They don't think of themselves as heroes. In fact, I can tell you for a fact that John Young would have a fit if he heard me using the word hero in reference to him. But they are heroes to me. I went out, got to know them, and when I went back for the launch in April of 81, it wasn't just two astronauts in the craft, it was two very close friends. And so it took on a very, very, very different meaning. Because these astronauts go through this, the process they go through over and over and over, they practice everything over and over and over. When we got down to the actual liftoff, now keep in mind, the initial liftoff was canceled. Three days later, it did lift off. But they got so far ahead of the clock, they just sat there for a good 40 minutes or so, and I was able to sit on the floor right between the two of them and just look up at them, and I started to sketch. But I, when I first sat there, I, I was almost afraid that John Young would look at me and just by looking at me, let me know that I was invading a very special private space. But that didn't happen. They were, their thoughts were, were turned inward. I know they were probably rehearsing everything again in their minds. But I finally did a very large watercolor of John Young called When Thoughts Turn Inward. And it came from that moment. What surprised me after they departed was how much work I did that morning with these two guys. I did 32 drawings, uh, watercolor studies, and, and watercolor sketches. I had no idea where they came from or how I did it. But it just, it just poured out because it was there. And it was emotion as well as uh, the artistic side that was making it all happen. It was the friendship with the two guys that, that was, I think, fueling it also. Any questions about this? The painting of John Glenn, <clears throat> I don't know if I should admit that, this here, but this is the kind of, uh, this is a stage of a watercolor or a watercolor that I would normally have thrown away. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I would not have let that out the studio. 
just, I could not destroy it. I could not get rid of it because of what it is. These two pieces, as well as that, but mostly these two pieces, it's a moment in history, can never be repeated. It could only happen right there at that moment. And I was fortunate enough to have that experience, to be there and put that paint on the paper at that moment. Here, there's a lot of history in John, John Glenn, a lot of space travel. It's historic, but it's not a first. Uh, there was some very important experimenting taking place with him. He was, he was actually a part of the flight to test what being in space would do to an older uh, body. But I got to tell you, at 70-plus years old, that was not a 70-plus-year-old body. He was in great, great, great shape. Uh, here, I had to wear basically, I went into work with them basically looking like a surgeon going into an operation, wore a mask, wore the hat, wore things on my feet. They took my temperature. They checked under my fingernails. You could not physically touch the astronauts. We got to a two-point window, two-week window, where family, his wife, were cut off. Only primary personnel, that means the technicians that are working with them and myself, had contact with them. We got down to that final week. It was fewer technicians and myself there with them. They were so, so conscious about them being healthy. Stop and think. If they catch, they, they develop a cold, and they have the shield over their face in their spacesuits, and they sneeze. What can they do? It's a, it's a very, very, it sounds very basic, and it is a very basic problem, but it's something that they cannot afford to have happen. On this, which took place 17 years later, it had changed so, so dramatically. There were tons of people. There was news people, there's photographers, everybody and his brother with patting them on the back, shaking their hands, hugging them, and it was a totally, totally different environment. What made this rather unique and different from my standpoint was that every camera in that place was pointed at this man, and there were seven other astronauts sitting there. And he was very conscious of that. That name tag is on Velcro, and he would rip it off and go stick it on somebody else's <laughs> Uh, uniform, tell them to photograph them. I guess it was our third day working together. And he looked over and, and he saw, I'm, I'm still there. I'm still working. And he said, you still here? I said, us old Marines have to stick together. And I could feel the sun rise right above my head and set. It was being a Marine and a Marine. It was, there was a connection there. And it was really, really wonderful. He said, call me John. And I said, I can never call you John. There's no way I'm a, I can do that. It would be too awkward. But he was wonderful. He was really, really, really wonderful. Uh, I think, again, very brave at that age to do what he did. But he's done some extraordinary things throughout his life. I wish I could tell you more about him personally. Um, I have books to read. It's just only so much you can do. I did not read about him nor about these two men before going to work because I did not want to be influenced. I wanted to soak up just what was happening. And 
The fact of the matter is I had absolutely no concept of what it was going to be like. What would happen? What would they be doing? And that's part of what makes it exciting. Uh, this, I always describe the, the summer before the liftoff, when I went to work with them for a week, as Disney World for adults. It, it was just the most incredible experience, the things that they were doing. And it was all technically oriented. Uh, they were working out problems for zero gravity. Uh, if, if you can imagine, if you put a s screwdriver into a screw in space and you turn it, you turn. The screw doesn't turn. So you have to be anchored in some way. And you, you lose your ability to work if one of the anchors is your hand. So they had to develop different things. And they did it by putting the astronauts in water tanks or taking them up on the, the flights, which you can't get as much done there. But in the water tank, they put them in their uh, spacesuits, fill it up with air. They're floating in the water. They spin them and put weights on different parts of their body until they're just spinning in zero gravity. And then they proceed to work. They asked if I wanted to go into the tank with them. And I said, no, I'm not going to be able to do much sketching in the tank. <laughs> but there were portholes. And so they put headgear on me. And I would just walk around the tank and sketch through the portholes. I'd been doing that for about an hour and a half. And I finally asked over the, the communication system if there was any way they could make it a little bit brighter in the tank so I could see better. And there was this moment of silence. And all of a sudden, the director of it says, thank you, Henry. We forgot to turn the lights on. And I'm thinking all of this incredible technology and somebody forgot to turn the light switch on. But it was, it was again, exciting. You just had to put your pencil on the paper and let it take a walk because there was so much going on. Look to the right, look to the left, and there was things to do, things to put down on paper. And I don't know what the exact number is that is split between a portrait gallery and the Air and Space Museum. Do you know? Yes. Um, and in fact, this is an interesting dimension of the acquisition. We shared it with the Air and Space Museum, also a Smithsonian um, museum. And we retained 10 of the sketches. Oh, and we shared so. 93 with the Air and Space Museum because um, Henry is actually being quite modest about what he accomplished with this commission. And in addition to representing um, these three astronauts, he also did some extraordinary sketches of gantries of um, the area where the space shuttle was um, departing from. And so one of, our, um, one of our goals as Smithsonian curators is to take advantage of the different pockets of expertise we have around the institution. And while for us, having portraits is of primary importance, for our colleagues at Air and Space, who know a lot about the space program, they were very interested in being able to interpret Henry's work from the perspective of the history of space exploration. So we, we shared, and uh, those portraits um, and, ob and objects at the Air and Space Museum are at our disposal and vice versa. Um, so we did, that, we did that split and called very, very carefully. And what about at NASA? The original commission was from NASA, mm -hmm. so did they pass the art to the Smithsonian? The way, the way it works is NASA as you say, commissions you. You get an honorarium, and at that time it was $1,500. Okay. 
and you pay for your flight, your hotel, your food, your film, your materials out of that $1,500. Your commitment is one full color piece and all of the on the spot things. My agreement was I keep all the on the spot pieces. They belong to my children. It was in their trust. And I will give you not just a painting, but paintings and other drawings, studies, and things from the originals. They agreed to it. Uh, and that's basically how it works. NASA has a huge collection. Uh, the Air and Space Museum has a collection. I am still confused as to whether the work is all housed at the Air and Space Museum or is it some of it housed at NASA someplace? So I'm not really sure how that works, but uh, I'm... Questions? And actually, maybe while we're talking a little bit about the details of the acquisition just for a moment, we can also acknowledge the generosity of the Taylor Energy Company and Mrs. Phyllis Taylor, who is a patron of um, Henry Caselli's and um, another very um, patriotically-minded individual. And so she and her husband have collected a lot of Henry's work over the years. And when they learned um, that the Smithsonian had an interest in these works, they very graciously saw to it um, that those objects were able to come to the Smithsonian. And so we are extraordinary, extraordinarily grateful also um, for particularly the role of Phyllis Taylor, but also the role of Taylor Energy in making possible this acquisition. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. This would not be here without Phyllis Taylor. Believe it or not, I was actually naive enough to think that I could sit and do oil sketches. I just didn't stop to think what happens when it's time to move. You have wet paint. How do you, how do you transport that? With, that, that was my what question. else? Yeah. How did you manage to keep that from getting? I did watercolors, but mostly drawings. And they were watercolors in this sense. They were watercolor sketches as opposed to finished watercolors. Uh, but it was mainly drawings, and I'm talking about anything from a scribble almost to some much more finished pieces because you're doing them in, in, in sketch pads, pads. And in fact, there are numerous pieces in the Marine Corps collection where there is a drawing on the inside cover, there's a drawing on the on the back cardboard, and there's a drawing on the outside of the cardboard because that was the moment. There was no looking for another sketch pad and. Numbers of them were done with sticks because my pen busted, and I would just pick up a twig or something, stick it in a bottle of ink, and start scribbling with it. There are some that have mud that I just mix water and use mud and did some things because that's what was happening there. When I came stateside after it was over, I did some paintings from that experience, very finished paintings, but they don't have the life and the breath that those pieces done in the mud have right there at the moment and I'm willing to talk about the art I won't talk about the combat side uh, I wasn't sitting there in a white linen suit with a little umbrella and sketching people I was a part of it the Marine Corps 
wanted to set me up in Hawaii or Okinawa, and I'd fly in for two weeks and come back in the studio and paint. And I said, I can't work that way. I have to be a, a part of it. And that's how I did it. Unfortunately, being the first combat artist for the Marine Corps there, there was nobody. I, I didn't belong to anybody. I didn't, I didn't belong to any particular anybody. I was totally on my own. And so I would literally just go to the hello pad and stick up my thumb, way heading, drop me off, and things were too quiet there. And they come into supply them. I'd put up a thumb, way headed, where's things happening? And so you made it on your own. But nobody was keeping track of me. So uh, I did not get home until two months after I should have been home. And the only reason I got home was because the man who was in charge of the art program here in the States, headquarters Marine Corps, came to Vietnam to take over a particular area there that took care of the news media. And when we met up, he said, when are you, gonna, when are you supposed to head home? I said, I have absolutely no idea. I'm not interested in going home. He said, well, you go across to, to Third Map and you find out when. I walked in and they said, you should have been going two months ago. And I won't take the story anywhere beyond that because it, it's not a good story after that. But you have Glenn shown sort of like reflecting through. Given that you said that you had prepared Reagan to start out, I'm curious, was he doing that or is this your inspiration? He was constantly looking down, zipping up stuff, and he carried eight pairs of glasses on liftoff. They could not convince him to put them in storage. He didn't have to have all eight pair, but he had eight pairs of glasses Velcroed all over him. And the reason there's so many pairs is because he was doing so many experiments, and a lot of it is looking up. So instead of having bifocals on the bottom that did that, they put them on the top so he could just look through it. And he had his little, I think it was his scout knife or something that had great meaning for him. But he was constantly putting the suit on and off, doing things. Uh, it, he wasn't praying. That's not what was happening. That's been the interpretation. And... I'm not saying he didn't pray, because my guess is he did, just knowing the man he was. But that's not what I was after. It was a very quiet, quiet moment. It's a very serious moment. That's the Marine about to go out on a mission. There's one more question, I think, right here, and then we'll conclude. Your comment about turning on the lights at NASA reminded me of that famous old joke that NASA spent $20 million to develop a ballpoint pen that could write in zero gravity. The Russians hit up their astronaut with a pencil. Right. <laughs> well, I, I will say in NASA's defense, that particular day they were working on some tool. And they would do things, and then they would send it out of the tank. They'd work on it right there, and then it would go back. The workmanship was so incredible. It's like a little piece of sculpture, but it was so finished, and it was done right there on the spot. And so I don't know what it was costing them or what, but... There are a lot of things you can't solve with a pencil, though, in space. <laughs> I promise you that. This has been very wonderful and exciting. I've lived with these pieces not so long ago, but I had an exhibition, uh, a retrospect, that opened in 2000. And they pulled in pieces from NASA from, uh, what, 30 years ago, and some of the Marine Corps stuff from 40-plus years ago. And when they would arrive at the museum, the director would call me to come in and see them. And it was like looking at someone else's work from a different time. And I'd get down on the floor and look at it and analyze it. So how did this guy do this? And, you know, what did he go, where did he start first? And 
Even though I did them, I, I have no idea. So. Well, they still have marine they still have artists. I mean, if you think about the First World War and the artists, they had yeah. The Marine Corps still has uh, combat artists functioning in the field now. I'm assuming other branches have them functioning now with the conflict. But the Marine Corps is the only branch of service that continued nonstop from the Vietnam into this era, new era. Uh, what I hate to admit to you is the young guys that are doing it now in the Marine Corps call me it's the old man that did it way back <laughs> for advice. <laughs> and the, the downside of that is uh, I want to help them, but there's no protocol. There are no rules for when you put your pencil away and do whatever else you have to do. But now I worry about them because I know them. I, I didn't know these guys before. Uh, but it's strange to be the old man now. We are so grateful to you for these reflections. They've been absolutely fascinating. Thank and thank you for all that you've given in terms of recording these extraordinary moments and also for your gifts in interpreting what you did and why you did it. Well, I want to thank the Portrait Gallery and yourself and the people we worked with that put these things on the wall because... They wouldn't mean anything if they were in a drawer someplace. But now they're out for the public to see and to continue the process. And I really, really appreciate it. It's, I was very fortunate enough to do it. I'm even more fortunate enough that it's being shared. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for your wonderful questions and observations.